Hello, everybody. Nothing gives me greater pleasure than welcoming you to somebody else's building, in this case, Rupert's building. So I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence. This is the first of our 10th anniversary salons. 10 years is a long time in the history of a company, and it's a particularly long time in the history of a company who began halfway through-ish the current internet era. So it's particularly fitting that we ask Andrew Keane, tech provocateur, polymath, massive disruptor, great user of the internet, to talk about his influential and some would say difficult, dangerous, Forbes says class warfare book called The Internet is Not the Answer. Andrew is going to speak for 10 or 15 minutes to set out the polemic in his book. We've then got a couple of pre-selected individuals who we know their views are ready to be shared. And then either I pick on you or you volunteer yourselves to cast an opinion. You can tweet throughout with the hashtag EIKeen. But I would like to once again thank News UK for hosting us. We felt for a big book making big statements about modern society and its relationship with technology, we needed a big technology company. And so this does feel glittering palace that it is, like the good place to start. So Andrew says, and I'm sorry if I'm stealing your first line, Andrew, that this book the internet is not the answer, which, by the way, I take great pleasure in being credited in the acknowledgements as having match made him with the publisher at our networking event. So get off the internet and get face to face. Um, Andrew says he was going to call this book Epic Fucking Fail. Uh, and, you know, uh, he's really rude in this book. There's no doubt about it. You know, I would not want to be some of the people he dismantles. He's probably the only person that can talk in one paragraph about the schmutter business in Soho and, and Schumpeter. Um, he's very concerned with whether privacy uh, is, is over-promised. And uh, he's going to talk about whether we have a digital future, let alone a good digital past. So, Andrew, over to you. Shall I stand up? Stand up. Okay. And be counted. <laughs> well, growing up, I, my biggest hero was uh, Julia's father, Eric Hobsbawm. So I'm not quite sure what to make of Julia, whether she's uh, <laughs> Eric Hobsbawm 2.0 or the opposite of him. But certainly, this experience is uh, is an honour. And, and I think it's interesting being at News Corp. I'm not a, I don't share Rupert Murdoch's politics. I'm sure most of you don't either. But I think he is a man who is committed to the idea of news and of investing in newspapers and in journalists and in curators. So uh, I think we should celebrate that because, you know, when it comes down to it, if we had to choose between Rupert Murdoch and Larry Page, I know what my choice would be. Uh, and I think we need to think critically about that because, uh, you know, choices are never ideal. And Murdoch isn't an ideal choice, but I think his focus on curated news, on investing in quality content is still, you know, I'm not just saying this because we're here, but I think it's still um, 
it's still the right choice. And if, we, uh, if you think about, say, if, if you wanted to compare you know, Murdoch with, with a Google or a Facebook, I think uh, I'd rather put the future in Ru Rupert's hands, even if that's a bit terrifying, than in the hands of Facebook and, and Google. So thank you so much, uh, Julia, for the introduction. Uh, so I wrote, can you give me the book? I can't remember what I wrote. So I have to take all my notes out now. Okay. Some of them are a boarding pass. And uh, Julia is right. This book originated uh, at her wonderful event, Names Not Numbers. You should all go there. I get 5% of every ticket sale. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a physical experience. Where, where is it? different times of the year. So I was there a couple of years ago. I was in a particularly bad mood. I, I was, had to do a breakfast event, and uh, I got up early. I think I just... I, I actually remember it was on a Sunday, and on the Saturday I'd been at Spurs, and they'd lost at home to Fulham, which was the... Uh, which explains why they didn't get in the Champions League that year, so I wasn't in a very good mood. And I gave a particularly obnoxious performance in the morning... And then this guy comes up to me uh, after I gave my performance, and he said, oh, uh, you're the Christopher Hitchens of the Internet. And, of course, that's a great compliment for me because I'm a big admirer of Hitchens. And it turns out it's the guy at the back, Toby Mundy, who was at that point the CEO of Atlantic. He was the publisher of, uh, of Hitchens and a, a wonderful uh, book guy. And uh, so he, over lunch uh, at the event, he convinced me to write a book about why the internet is not the answer. And as Julia says, originally it was called Epic Fail or Epic Fucking Fail. And then it became The Internet is Not the Answer because of another great publisher in New York called Morgan Entrican, who runs uh, Grove Atlantic, who, again, is the ex like Toby, like Julia, these are the gatekeepers, these are the curators, these are the people who pick out talent, invest in talent, and improve on it. So uh, Morgan and Toby were arguing one day about the title of the book. Morgan thought that Epic Fail was a bit abstract. And at one point in their argument, uh, Morgan shouted over the phone. He was in New York. Toby was in London. Well, the Internet's not the answer. And then there was this silence. And then they both thought, oh, that's a good title. So <laughs> it is a good title, although I've got a couple of kind of backhanded compliments. Uh, people have said to me, they read the book, and they were surprised with how good it was because they expected it to be really bad because of the title. Uh, and I, you know, and, and I, I treat that as a compliment in the sense that uh, I could have had a title, the Internet is currently not the answer, or the Internet might not be the answer, or the Internet is half the answer, which is really the truth of the book because I'm not a Luddite, I'm not against technology, and as I always do, I, I flash my iPhone. I'm, as, as many of you know... I'm as connected, I, I will respond like Martin Sorrell to emails within 30 seconds. Uh, so the internet has to be the answer, but at the moment it isn't. At the moment it's not working out. Someone said to me, or everyone says to me, well, if the internet's not the answer, what's the question? And the question I, I, I keep on repeating is, what is the, and I use this phrase carefully, what is the operating system for our 21st century society? Because when we talk about the Internet, I'm not talking about pipes. I'm not talking about technology. I'm talking about a fundamental revolution. I'm talking about the Internet as the equivalent of the Industrial Revolution. Julia's father has written a, a, a wonderful series or, or wrote a wonderful series of books 
about the culture, the politics, the sociology, the economics of the Industrial Revolution. And we're living through something of, of equivalent profound disruption. We're living, uh, as Eric uh, Bryn Johnson and Andrew McAfee of MIT said, we're talking about this second machine age. We're talking about an era of profound change in every aspect. So when I talk about the internet as not the answer, I, I'm talking about these great profound disruptive shifts in the way we do business, in the way we personalize ourselves, in the way we organize our economics and society. So there are three, uh, and I have to be brief here, I would say 10 minutes and it turns into two hours. I'll try and summarize. Exactly. Oh. I'll tell you when you're... I won't worry. <laughs> I never worry. Um, so three things why currently the Internet is not the answer, why this digital revolution isn't working out. At the beginning, I talk about the way in which we were promised by many evangelists, from John Perry Barlow to um, Tim Berners-Lee, who I actually greatly admire, uh, to Kevin Kelly, to many of the other evangelists in the Valley, in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, they all promised the same thing. They said this internet revolution would be different. It would solve the core injustices of capitalism, of 20th, 20th century capitalism. That this would be a revolution that would give power to the people, that would democratize economic opportunity, cultural voice, that this would be the righting of all the wrongs of 20th century industrial capitalism. So we were promised a lot by this, in, by this internet revolution. We were promised that it would do away with the old hierarchies, the old injustices, the old choke points, the news cores of the world, the, uh, the publishers, the Hollywood studios, that everyone would have a voice and that everything would be ideal. And what I argue in this book is that that's not the way things have worked out for three reasons. Firstly, I argue that actually the internet isn't the cause of inequality. You know, Thomas Piketty wrote a very powerful, important book called Capital in the 21st Century, in which he, and he doesn't really talk that much about the internet, but he makes the point that actually the 21st century is defined by an increasing inequality between rich and poor. And what I argue in this book is that the internet is both a cause and a consequence, increasingly a central cause and consequence in that inequality. What I argue is that it's created through the network effect. It's not anyone's fault. It's not an evil cabal. I'm not a Marxist. I don't believe in some, uh, some uh, natural sort of conspiracy of history. But that it, what, it, what it's resulted in is a, is a, um, a winner-take-all economy in which the digital revolution, network society, is actually contributing to the undermining of the middle class, uh, both in economic and cultural terms. And what we're seeing with this digital revolution is actually more inequality, more of a chasm between a tiny elite of people with you know, billions of followers on YouTube and Twitter and everyone else, uh, a cultural and economic equality, uh, inequality of companies like Google and Facebook in which the old middle class, the industrial middle class of the 20th, 20th century is being hollowed out. And that inequality, I think, is particularly troubling, something that bothers, I'm sure, all of us here. And the Internet is contributing to that. It hasn't solved that problem. 
and this digital economy, this digital revolution is actually contributing massively towards that as it becomes more and more central in our 21st century society. The second thing I point out in this book is it's contributing to the crisis of jobs. We know that the recovery in the US and the, and the UK at the moment is a jobless recovery. In the book, I have two chapters, one on Instagram and one on, uh, one on Kodak. Kodak was the quintessential industrial company. It employed 150,000 people in Rochester, New York. Uh, throughout the 20th century, it was one of the dominant five or 10 brands in the world. Now, I don't believe that any company should exist or has a right to exist forever. Uh, as Julia mentioned, you know, Schumpeter is the great analysis of, of, of capitalism. And what he pointed out, this creative destruction, is something that is baked into the nature of capitalism. I don't think that's good or bad. That's a reality. But the problem, of course, is that Kodak, with its 150,000 employees, with its unions, with its secure jobs, with its physical production of, 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 of products, uh, was replaced by Instagram. We shift from a, a Kodak moment to an Instagram moment. Instagram, a couple of years ago, just as Kodak went bankrupt, Instagram was sold to Facebook for a billion dollars, and Instagram employed 15 or 20 people. The problem, of course, as I point out in the book, is that um, we've shifted from an industrial factory economy to a data factory economy where we're all working for free. The reason why Instagram could be worth so much money or uh, WhatsApp even more, $20 billion and employed about 55 people, also bought by Facebook, is because we're all working for these companies. We're all contributing content. We're all putting our photographs up on that network and we're not being rewarded. So what we see is the emergence of an economy in which most people are not rewarded for their labor, and machine intelligence or technology is replacing physical labor. So the crisis of jobs, I point out, in terms of the internet not being the answer, is truly troubling and will become, as, as we have this emergent robot economy of intelligent machines, will become an increasingly central issue in 21st century capitalism. Finally, the third reason why the internet is not the answer is that we're building in this free economy as we all put our photographs up on Instagram, as we all put our tweets up and we, we announce ourselves on Facebook, we're creating a surveillance economy because the free economy, these products are supposedly free. No one pays for them. They seem to be almost too good to be true. And of course, they are too good to be true. Because every time we use one of these services, whether it's YouTube or Google or Facebook or Twitter, we are being followed, whether it's Instagram, which has just developed its advertising product. So the only way in which this so-called free economy, and it is a real economy, but it's not free, the only way this thing can work is if we are exchanging our data for these products. And of course, as we exchange these data, as these companies know more and more about us, these big data companies, we're creating what one analyst called the surveillance economy. And that's the dominant business model of the internet. It's not an exchange economy. When I, you know, when I went on the tube to come here, I paid money for my ticket. Uh, when I came over on, on the airline, I paid money for my ticket. 
But in this economy, we're exchanging our personal data for services and products. And what I argue in the book is that this is a bad thing because we are giving up our privacy. We're creating a surveillance economy. It's not Big Brother. Google and Facebook aren't totalitarian. They don't want to control our minds. They're not interested in a correct line. All they want to know is know us more and more intimately so that they can turn us into products. My last book was called Digital Vertigo. And of course, the narrative of this is, it may not be Christopher Hitchens, but it's certainly Alfred Hitchcock, uh, where we, as the, inner, the supposed innocents, are bound up as the product. We are the victims of this world. So inequality, unemployment, surveillance. So what's the answer? The internet is not the answer. How can we make it the answer? How can we solve this problem? Three things very briefly. Firstly, we need adult supervision. We need the government to become involved. In America, whenever I see this, I'm accused of being a European socialist. And as you can tell, you know, this isn't Europe. Uh, I'm certainly not European. Um, and uh, there's a big difference. And, and I believe in the market. So I think one can be critical of this world without being a, a European socialist. I think we need regulation. We need it in terms of antitrust regulation against monopolists like Google and perhaps Amazon. We need regulation against disruptive companies like Uber. And above all else, we probably need regulation in the data front. The EU now is pioneering a right to be forgotten law. Maybe, it's, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But what we've got to remind ourselves is that at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we had the same structural problems and issues. We had the same injustices. We're at the early stage of this, but unless we address it now, by 2020, by 2050, by 2030, it will be way too late. We need corporate regulation. We need companies to work together. In the book, I talk about the way in which some companies, Google and Microsoft, have worked together to fight piracy. Piracy, one of being one of the, the pandemics, one of the things that destroys the creative economy. So we need companies to grow up and be more responsible. But above all else, I think we need to be responsible ourselves. It's all too easy, and particularly in our internet culture, we have the tendency to blame others. It's always somebody else's fault. And of course, that's one of the most troubling cultural features of the internet, this sort of pogrom-style culture in which we go after people every second, and then we forget who we've gone after, and we go after somebody else. We need to take responsibility ourselves. The internet, and I have a couple of chapters at the beginning with its history, I remind people that it has a very concrete cultural, historical, and economic history. We need to remind ourselves that it, is, it wasn't something that was delivered by a stork in the middle of the night. Um, it came out of a government initiative. It came out of scientific and academic investment. But what's important is that we need to understand that the Internet is not just a place of rights. We've become preoccupied with the idea of rights. People like Jeff Bezos have seduced us with what I call the cult of the consumer. Um, but we have responsibilities as well. And when we use, say, a service like Amazon, just as the prices are great, the convenience is great, we have to understand the implications of this world. With Amazon, for example, the cost, and it's a real cost, of cheap books, cheap products, is a very, very troubling practice when it comes to labor, is an increasing monopoly when it comes to the treatment of publishers, and of course, the decimation of independent retail. So 
All our choices have costs. There's nothing free about this economy. We've been seduced by this networked society, by this digital revolution. We've been told that it's in our name, that everything is for us. But we know in our day-to-day -day lives that whenever someone says it's for you, that it's really for them, that it's a seduction, and that we need ourselves to grow up. We can't blame others. We need to take responsibility for this network, just as we did at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. It's going to take time. Um, the, the problems of the Industrial Revolution took a century to work themselves out. Child labor, pollution, the behavior of robber barons. We have the same problems. Indeed, data is the new pollution. And so it's going to take a generation or two to work this thing out. But if we just sit back and assume that these problems will work themselves out, that the market is the solution, that's a fundamental error. The market isn't the solution. It wasn't the solution at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And if we leave it to be the solution, and Julia's father was a, a great teacher in this sense. He, his books on the Industrial Revolution I, I read in, with great relish, wonderful <coughs> books, both A-levels, undergraduate, and now for this book. He reminds us of the importance, I think, of regulation and the importance of society. We've been fetishized as consumers. What we now need to do, I think, is become citizens. So that's introduction to the book. You. You want me to sit back? Sit. Can you bring the book back? You thought I was wow. going to steal it, right? Yeah. Lack of soundbite, you know. Couldn't think of a single thing you said that was catchy, Andrew. I had to um, tweet it. Isn't this Chatham House rules? No, it is not. It's okay. totally tweeting. <laughs> Total uh, transparency. You know, solving the injustices of 21st century capitalism. Um, I'd like you to name some more villains in the piece than just Google and Amazon. Like, individually, where does responsibility lie? Because it's very difficult. We're all buying into this, surely. Well, I, you mean individuals? or? Yeah, so who... who who is promoting this problem and who isn't? Well, I, one person I would, and, and, and when I pick on someone, it's a compliment, because I only bother to criticize people if they have something interesting to say. Um, so I think Peter Thiel is interesting, and I think, if, I hope you'll read my book, but you should also read his book, Zero to One, because it's really the parallel book. Just as I wrote Cult of the Amateur, which was a response to the long tail. I think you should read Teal's Zero to One in parallel with mine. Teal, while he wouldn't acknowledge being a libertarian, I think is, and sees these entrepreneurs, and he has this sort of German background as the Ubermensch, as the Superman, driving history forward. You remember John Stuart Mill in his book On Liberty talked about the intellectual changing everything and driving history forward. I think for, 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 for Teal, it's the entrepreneur, it's the technology entrepreneur who is only capable of, of, of changing things. And I think, whereas my critique of the digital world is its tendency towards monopoly and huge companies that are actually against innovation, I think with Thiel, he celebrates monopoly. He says societies benefit from monopoly. He says that we need new monopolies, that that benefits both entrepreneurs and society. So I would think his is a parallel text. So one more question before I f 
throw open to our, our uh, discussants is this, which is the, um, you may not be a European socialist, but you're a European, you're a North London boy. Well, that's different from being a European. And in <laughs> Europe, in London, in the UK, we're very worried about the overweening, over-regulatory powers of Europe. I mean, your brave new regulated, legislated break on excess image is optimistic, surely. What would regulators really do, given free reign? Well, I, think I mean, antitrust well, regulation... Yeah, I mean, one of the th interesting things in terms of the response to this book is I'm, I was always struck with the different response in different markets, but I'm particularly struck with this book. Is, you know, I was in Germany a couple of weeks ago. The book sold out you know, within 20 minutes on Amazon. It was a bestseller. In Germany, there's a real sympathy with this position, whereas in America, there is a hostility. And I think we're seeing the clash, I don't know, of civilizations or of political systems. Um, you know, and Britain is kind of, as always, caught in between. It's neither Europe nor America, but probably closer to being America. I think that the initiative needs to come from somewhere. So I use the example of Microsoft. Think about, let's go back to the mid-90s. Microsoft was a monopolist, a dangerous monopolist. Bill Gates was the ultimate business bully, crushing opposition. He was particularly violent in terms of his response to Microsoft. He, as a monopolist, he was anti-innovation. And the Europeans were willing to challenge Microsoft. The Americans weren't, really. So the initiative came from Europe. And it was only after that challenge to Microsoft and the weakening of Microsoft that you really got the Internet Revolution. Uh, the real Internet Revolution began in the late 90s. It wasn't really in the mid-90s, but the, really, the, the, really, the first real Internet company was Google. Now, had Google emerged in 1999, 2000, with a Microsoft that was confident, that Microsoft was totally unshackled by government, Microsoft would have crushed Google. I was in uh, Seattle a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to one of the Microsoft lawyers. Now, this is something that's obviously still painful in Microsoft, but you know, off the record at least, these guys acknowledge that. They acknowledge that they didn't behave right. And of course, Google is the new Microsoft. Uh, as there's all sorts of cases going on now in Europe where Google's power across markets is being used to crush innovation. So I think... The real issue is not, to conf is not to assume that regulation is against innovation. The point is, is that we need regulation to encourage innovation. Uh, that this winner-take-all economy has created this, these companies which are almost um, unimaginable in, in economic history. And Google is much more powerful than Microsoft ever was. Because not only is it dominant in technology, in search, but in mobile, in automotive, in video. And I think the real argument needs to be, and this is what will unite both Europe and America, is that we need regulation to stimulate innovation. Because you real also want monopolies. You want the Peter Thiel monopoly. No, no, I'm opposed to monopolies. Mon Thiel says monopolies are good. My whole, the whole argument in my book is monopolies are bad. Monopolies against innovation and they're bad for society. Uh, so we have, you know, with, with Amazon, for example, 
Amazon as a monopoly crushes, we know, the Amazon case against Hachette. It's bad for publishers, it's bad for writers, and it's bad for readers. Uh, the Google monopoly is, I think, bad. Uh, you know, 90% now of the European search market is controlled by Google. That's bad for consumers, it's bad for innovators, it's bad for all of us. Right, so we want disagreement because we don't want a monotheistic, monopolistic view. Uh, I'm going to come, could we have the microphone, to two women. Uh, Holly Baxter, who is also an internet disruptor, who founded the uh, website, co-founded The Gender. And Holly, here comes a microphone for you. We asked you to just think a little bit in advance and to give a response. And then I'm going to come to Judith, and then we're all going to have our say. Holly, what's your view? Yeah, so um, I, I really enjoyed the book, and I really um, enjoyed like reading it. I, I really thought that it was um, it made some interesting points. But I think you, you sort of... Um, yeah. <laughs> Give us the yeah, part, Holly. You sort of hung up on business, and um, you sort of generalized to culture and society. So some things you said just now, um, you said, you know, we were pro promised a re revolution. We were promised profound shifts in shaping society. Um, we were promised that we would democratize cultural voices and get rid of old hierarchies, um, and none of that happened, and that the internet is the sort of new frontier of elitism. Um, but for me, um, the internet, like I wouldn't be standing here at all without the internet. So I come from Newcastle, um, from a working class background, where I don't have any media contacts and never did. I set up a blog, and it became really, really successful through social media. And um, through that, I ended up then getting my journalistic um, jobs in The Guardian and elsewhere. And um, I think that as much as uh, I do agree about things to do with facades and social media and how they can be sort of personally and individually um, sort of awful, um, at the same time, social media is actually doing a really good job of um, getting rid of the old class system, that it helps to put people up there who never would have been up there before. Um, it is actually it is disrupting the hierarchies in a way that I just think you've kind of ignored in the book. So when you remove the sort of the whole monopolies with companies and things, which is just a mirror, as you said, of capitalist society anyway, um, what would you say about all of those good things that social media does for society and for getting rid of the hierarchies, especially in the media that have existed for so long? Andrew, are you too dismissive of the gains? And what do you say specifically to the point about the more egalitarian aspects of the internet? Well, Holly, right? Yeah. So let's imagine the internet didn't exist, right? Let's just say Tim Berners or the World Wide Web didn't exist. Tim Berners-Lee had been knocked over by a bus, God forbid, in Geneva in 1988. And you, as a, what? A young woman, what was your thing? What, what do you do? Feminism. Fe I mean, what is that? <laughs> you make money? Is oh, that your job? It's a central Femin belief in gender equality. It's also... No, um, but, but no, I understand that. But my point is, how, how, what, what is your media career? What do you sell? What do you do? Well, what value do you create? Well, I um, actually criticizing the media. And as we all know, the media loves things that pertain to itself. Um, so that's part of the reason why I think um, I But you're successful. someone clearly, so you, so you ended up, you got, you got a big following, what, on Twitter, on Facebook? Yeah. On, blo on the blogosphere? On Twitter. And then that resulted in, in, in you monetizing your talent through The Guardian? 
Yeah, essentially, yes. But what's your point, Andrew? Well, no, my, no, my, my point... Prowess notwithstanding, what's my your point? My point is that in the old world, you probably still would have done the same thing. You would have started work for a local newspaper. You would have found gatekeepers who recognized your talent. And you would have worked your way up. I think the idea that somehow old media was against women or against feminism, I think... Is, is wrong. I think the idea that there were no females having a career in newspapers is but wrong. But I don't think that's what she's saying. She's talking about the new possibilities, right, Holly? Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah, talking about the new possibilities is she's working for The about, Guardian. Um, than about feminism in general, and I know for a fact that that wouldn't actually have happened because my parents tried it before me. They're working class, and they couldn't just work, like walk into local newspapers and build up a vast following and then become successful journalists. Although social mobility over the last 15 to 20 years in this country has gone down, not up, Holly. Yeah. True, but I think a great driver of the people who have managed to get to the top is to do with the internet. I think without it, we'd be in an even worse position. So, so okay, so my point is, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with what you're saying, but my point is that it's, it's created new superstars. There's a woman at Harvard Business School called Anita... Ellsberg, who writes, has written a book, a very important book called The Blockbuster, Blockbuster. Economy. Mm. So there are always, you know, there's the Andrew Sullivans of the world who have massive followers, who was, who began in old media and now started in new media and has, you know, millions of followers and, and an independent business on the blogosphere. I think the interesting thing about your story is that you had to end up working for The Guardian. Why didn't you make a business on the internet? My point is not that, not that talent isn't rewarded, but in this new economy, really talented people are struggling even more to monetize themselves. So, so The Guardian is a unique example of an old media company that doesn't really depend on a business model because it's essentially a charity. Um, it doesn't make money. It gets You're its money from somewhere else. We're in News UK's office right <laughs> now. No, I say that in the book. Judith Clegg, uh, how do I describe you, Judith? Serial entrepreneur, tech advisor, strategist, marvellous person. What's your Thank point? You. So, uh, yeah, I run an innovation agency and I'm an angel investor and I've been an internet entrepreneur. And to start my question, I'd like to tell a little story, actually, about when I... As I would consider myself a friend of yours, Andrew, although I'm going to now have a go at you, but that's what all good friends do. And when I held a dinner for you in my apartment in New York, one of your other books, and I invited a, a series of well-known people, and I had two... Very interesting responses. One from Fred Wilson, the well-known angel investor, and another from Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, both along the lines of, why would you let that devil man, and there were some other words used, uh, inside your front door, and it's a disgrace that he's even going to be in your home, was, was some of the questions. And then, those are those Americans. So then, today, before I came here, I spoke to some of the smartest people I know in politics, entrepreneurship, investment some authors, UK, French, Germans. And here's some of the questions they thought I should ask you. Uh, why are you the UKIP or the Daily Mail of the internet? Uh, why are you such a blank? Um, then we had some other heinous crimes mentioned, not to mention, uh, as being an Arsenal fan, your heinous support of Spurs. Um, and so you kind of you enjoy this this reputation as a pantomime villain, and yet, in my opinion, you ask some important questions. So you're challenging 
the internet and why we're not making it available for everyone and not just for the privileged few. And we're now in a time when I think when even some of the most kind of celebrated innovators like Gates and Musk and so on are starting to say that things like artificial intelligence actually are negative and potentially dangerous. So you're asking the right questions. And so my question to you is, if you were to reinvent yourself as Andrew 2.0, um, so that you, instead of being a kind of an in, someone who enraged as a provocateur, that you could be an agent and a driver of positive change <laughs> to build on all of the fantastic things that the internet stands for and make it even better, what would you do? Are you oh going to go God. all nicey-nicey? No, me? Uh, well, I, I, let me respond to that. And firstly, I think, and, and then there's a strong political element to my work, I think that... Um, this idea of me being part of UKIP or the Daily Mail is absurd, really. I think that what's interesting is that I get very different response to my work. The old left actually likes it. We've got Frank Ferretti here. I, I don't mean to insult you, Frank, but as... as well, but you're, but you're a representative of the, of the traditional left, someone maybe your father was also associated with. I think that these shall we say, digital progressives have made a fundamental error in putting their faith in the internet. And I think, you know, the Larry Lessigs and the Jimmy Waleses of the world are actually incredibly politically naive. And uh, I would much rather work with a Frank Ferredi or a Hobsbawm, people who really understand the history of labor and the history of the working class and the history of injustice. Again, you know, we can... We can talk about Uber. I'm very critical of Uber in my book. I was in Berlin a couple of weeks ago, uh, Munich a couple of weeks ago. Travis Kalelnik from Uber came and promised Europe 50,000 new jobs if he let Uber into their market. Uh, but Uber doesn't create jobs. These are monopoly platforms for the gig economy, which are deeply exploitative. So I think that the real left, real progressives, are actually going to deeply regret their commitment to this, this, this ideal, which has turned into something much more problematic. So I, you know, the, the idea of me being a little Englander is absurd. I'm not UKIP. I live in America. I'm certainly anything but an English nationalist. I'm anything but a racist. And I think that the real challenge to progressives, and you know, I was in DC a couple of weeks ago. I talked to the unions there. I think unions, working class people, are beginning to understand that this is a fraud, that it's not in their interest. And it's fine for Jimmy Wells, who's made billions of dollars, or Fred Wilson, these sort of ertzatz liberals. They're, they're laughing all the way to the bank, but they're frauds. Okay. So, so let me respond to that. And in terms of, you know, I think that the Internet is the answer. It has to be the answer. But at the moment, it isn't. I mean we can be critical of it without giving up on it. So the title of the book doesn't mean that the internet will never be the answer. Okay, so more critical friends or critical critics, please say your name, rank and serial number. Please be brief-ish because I know the well, can room we just will light ask up. I'm just curious because Frank's in the front row and I really respect his work. Frank for I mean, what, what, What's your response, Frank? Judith, will you the, just part... To the, Frank to the, the idea that, microphone um, and then we'll go to the gentleman that behind. somehow any criticism of technology puts you in UKIP, makes you a reaction. Well, obviously that's quite absurd, but there's a, there's a problem that you raised, which I'm not sure is 
that easy to resolve because what you're really saying is that neither monopolies, no regulation or a solution. I mean, we're kind of stuck in between a, a world where uh, you know, we're either confronted with big companies that are totally out of control and have an oppressive dominating dynamic, but at the same time, I think you also recognize, I th I'm sure you would recognize that one of the problems with regulation is that it may breed the attitudes that create the cultural precursors for the narcissistic attitudes that are, exist on the internet. The, I mean, you talk about the cultural dynamic towards the giving up of information, the abandonment of privacy, uh, the way in which we just allow ourselves to be captives of uh, all these kind of big companies. And it seems to me that uh, very often those kinds of attitudes are come about precisely because in, in a very intensive regulatory society, the capacity for autonomous, independent, open-minded, tolerant attitude becomes diminished. And I, and I just wanted to know whether you kind of, well, how you deal with that kind of tension between the kind of two devils that we deal with. I, I think what you said about Thiel is really right. And as a professor, uh, his ideas on higher education, I find, are just totally anti-intellectual. Pa paying people, I mean, paying the smartest kids not to go to college. It, it just destroys the very idea of culture, and it's the most Philistine okay. way of, anyway, I'll just Quick stop. response, and then let's start the, the rest of the room going. Andrew, anything to say to Frank's? Well, I, I do make narcissism an important cultural and economic piece, because we, we, we've been told that social media will bring us together, but the reality of a network world at the moment is it's lending itself to what I call a, a selfie economy, um, a selfie culture in which we're not really connecting. The internet has become an echo chamber and it reflects the fragmentation of traditional communities and the individualization of, of culture and of, of economics. So of course we have this selfie economy where we use these so-called social networks to broadcast ourselves in the most embarrassing and compromising ways. I, I talk about the way in which we've, we've, we've fallen back into a pre-Copernican universe where we assume the world is, revolves around us. So certainly the, 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 the element of, of, of the selfie culture and of selfie economics is, is very central in my argument. But Andrew, what the network science tells us, of course, is that... What's network science? Collaboration, what is social it? network analysis, the... Uh, behavioral economics, neuroscience, looking at the way society structures in the network economy, which is kind of my hat, shows that what works very well is a mixed economy where you're not completely dependent on an internet that's either good or bad, but that you, you have lives that are offline and integrated and building alliances and collaborations. There's some very interesting network behavior happening in the health systems for instance, where they're, guess what, talking to each other, not tweeting each other. So how much of this is about realigning the way humans behave off technology rather than expecting the technology to just perpetuate some kind of advancement? So we have this very ironic development, uh, and that's why I think Julia is doing so well. She puts on physical events. This is a physical event. We come to, you know, we we've got other things to do this evening, we choose to come to these things, not just to listen to Julia and I, but to meet each other. And the irony of the internet is by commodifying the copy, commodifying uh, the digital, it's actually created new value in the physical experience. So conferences, physical events, 
bookstores that bring people together. Uh, that's the new value. And I, I absolutely agree. It's very ironic that in this supposed new age, the thing that is most valuable, you see it in the success of Julia, of networks like TED, of DLD, is the physical experience. We long for the complexity of the physical meeting. Good, I'm glad we sorted that out. Gentlemen there, please say who you uh, are. Yes, hello, I'm um, Martin Hawley from Board Circle. My concern, uh, Board Circle. What's that? It's, um, it's a company to find non-exec directors for uh, SMEs by directors sharing them. So, okay. Um, I, sorry, sharing director time with other SMEs. The, my question's about um, market intermediaries, and which is a, is, a, is a way of making money out of the internet. You, you put yourself in the middle of your suppliers and your customers. And I worry about a race to the bottom. And if you take companies like People Per Hour and Freelancer.com, yeah. that actually people are really, um, I don't know, in, in one hand it could be exploited, and in another it could be that they're just getting paid a little bit of pocket money for their hobby. And I just wondered how you, how you think about that. Okay, thank you. That was good and brief. Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. Can and you relay that more widely? Well, we, we have this shift. I, I talked about Uber. We have this shift from an industrial economy where we're employed by a Kodak for life to a gig economy where we sell our labor on Uber, or on Uber, on Airbnb, on TaskRabbit. And the challenge is, again, respecting labor. The same day that um, Travis Kalalnik made his promise to, for 50,000 new jobs in Europe, uh, Larry Summers and Ed Balls, we all know Ed Balls, Larry Summers being the ex-president of Harvard, very distinguished American uh, economist, came out with a report saying that these, this gig economy, in my book I talk about this new precariat. We thought the proletariat was bad enough. Now we have this precariat selling their labor per day, per hour, per minute. is creating more and more insecurity, less viability for, for working life. So I think you're absolutely right. I'm very critical of this new kind of economy where companies like Uber take advantage of labor but have no obligation, give no pensions, don't allow unions. So I think, again, you know, using, say, the work of, of somebody like your father, this represents a degeneration. It's not ideal. The free market doesn't solve the problem. If all we have are these dominant platforms that allow us to sell our labor, I think it contributes to more and more inequality. And it's the platform companies that profit they take their 30 or 40% and the rest of us don't. So, okay. so it's a huge issue, it's really important. At the back and then Alice over here and then we'll keep on, thank you. Hi, I'm Patrick Fleming, I'm from the British Library. Um, let's assume for this discussion that um, the internet is the fraudulent king and you're the king baron. Uh, what would Say your? That again, sorry. <laughs> let's assume for this discussion that uh, the internet is the fraudulent king, as you yeah. suggest and that you're the King Baron, and you're going to lead us to a new Magna Carta for the web, what would you say? Well, I would say, you're talking about Magna Cartas. Tim Berners-Lee talked about a new Magna Carta, a Bill of Rights. I would talk about a Bill of Responsibilities. Again, it comes back to my solutions. We've got to stop thinking about the web as this thing that was delivered for us. We've got to uh, disabuse ourselves of... of, 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 of of ourselves as having, as being consumers with these somehow intrinsic rights. So it's responsibilities, whether it's how we treat each other, how we use these services. And I think the other thing that I would really focus on is business models. I think those are really important. 
And as I've said, it may seem slightly naive or, or, or kind of oversimplified, but I, I don't think the business model works. I don't think the free business model works. We've got to learn how to pay for things again. You know, Microsoft, again, we don't idealize them. They were a bully in their age, but they had a coherent business model. Bill Gates, who now I think is a model for a responsible philanthropist, he was a, a rather irresponsible entrepreneur, uh, he always insisted on the value of content. And I think free is really one of the most destructive uh, cultural elements of this. We've got to stop thinking that there's something noble about free, whether it's free content, free services. We've got to learn to pay for these things again because it's only in that way that we can really be empowered, both as consumers and citizens. But responsibilities rather than rights, that's the, the, the beginning. Alice. Um, Alice Sherwood. <coughs> Try again. Alice Sherwood, um, Senior Visiting Research Fellow at the Policy Institute of King's uh, and also North London Girl. Um, I haven't read your book yet, um, but in half an hour you've convinced me that the internet is not the answer to the economy yet. It's not an economic answer. Uh, so what I'm going to throw uh, 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 into the argument is uh, that as a knowledge bank, as, I know this is pompous, but I couldn't think of another phrase that wasn't cultural repository, so just bear with me on that one. What's a knowledge bank? Oh, and a place where the knowledge that you couldn't get, uh, that couldn't be disseminated as widely before, it's completely unparalleled. Um, it's a, got huge potential for education, which again is not necessarily an economic point. It's a library of everything. Now, I think that's incredibly exciting, uh, and maybe that library of everything is leading but I suspect that we will find a way to monetize it. It's just happening in a different order. So, library of everything, and while you're well, we at it... we have the library of everything at the back. The gentleman is the... That, you're the library of everything, right? How would you British respond library. to that idea of the internet is the library of everything? Well, um, as we collect the entire .co.uk web domain at the moment, we're actually probably starting our journey. Uh, Henry, over here, please. And then we'll go down to Nico in the front. Um, hi, Andrew. Henry Mason uh, from trendwatching.com. Uh, from where? Trendwatching.com. What's that? Um, so we look at consumer trends. So okay. we're probably the exact opposite of much of what you talk about, kind of evangelical about consumers and the opportunities that arise for them. Uh, just a couple, I mean, loads of points that we could discuss, but a few observations. You know, you spoke about. Uh, inequality and there's so much written on inequality and, and the hollowing out of the middle class in the UK, the US, Europe uh, and reading your book I was kind of thinking you know but you don't see any marches in Jakarta or in uh, Shanghai or Bangkok against the internet or you know and you, and you get people who have very little who are choosing to purchase a phone you know, because of what it gives them. And it just feels to me like a lot of this argument is a, is a very narrow, actually quite uh, conservative, paternalistic argument that, you know, everyone else is idiots and what you're choosing to uh, spend your time on, spend your money on, is wrong. And, and you know, we know better or I know better. Uh, 
and you know, I just, I'm not sure you can argue with the, the, the way the world is heading and the choices that everyone makes around the world. Um, right. So, so what about the fact that it's the repository of general knowledge and gorgeousness? And what about the paternalism that you're accused of, along with being a closet UKIP supporter? And answer those two points. They're both good points. Are they? Yeah, come on. The whole repository opening up of access of information has been enabled by the internet. Surely you would concede I, that. I would like to see the examples. I mean, I talk about Wikipedia in the book, for example. And Wikipedia is still, by definition, really unreliable. I, I, I cite a study um, by uh, an expert in, uh, in, in healthcare who argues that nine out of the ten entries are wrong. Wikipedia reflects the culture of the people who commit themselves, and it's a very opaque culture, a very oligarchic one, much less transparent than old media. Uh, and in, you, know, you get long entries for Star Wars or certain kinds of software developers, much less for you know, distinguished feminists or labor activists or political figures. So I'm not convinced. You know, for us, maybe the internet is a good first step. But learning about the world through Wikipedia or through Google, I don't think is very adequate. So I would actually argue with that. I don't think it's, for, it's, it's the repository of knowledge that you describe. Uh, you know, as, the, for, as for the absence of uh, demonstrations by people who brandish their mobile phones quite happily, what are you going to say well, about Well, you know, I have, I have a, a little section on politics. And again, I, you know, I, we, we talk, uh, in the book I talk about Occupy Movement, I talk about the Arab Spring. And what the internet has failed to do, or what the digital network has failed to do, is enable the viability of long-term political movements. So it's great for empowering consumers. It's great for getting them enraged about high airline prices or, or bad service somewhere or other. But what you don't see, say, with Occupy, which was a, a quilt of individual voices, what you don't see is, the is, is it maturing into a coherent long-term political movement. And the, I think the network lends itself more, much more to charismatic movements, to people like Beppe Grillo in Italy, much more to that sort of mob-like demonstration than long-term political movements. So what I haven't seen are coherent political movements grow out of the internet, apart from, 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 from okay. you know, consumer interest groups. Now we're into the closing minutes when everybody's very frantic. Nico McDonald is going to be very brief. Mr. Google at the Go back. Nico's You've got to never give brief. Mr. Google his voice. He's never brief. Nico McDonald, be brief. Then we go to James Rosenthal from Google, and then we see where we get to, I'm afraid. Uh, okay, I, I was going to remark on people attacking you online, but I won't, uh, although it's uh, indefensible. Um, yeah, you talked about... Um, the fact that this was a, a, a revolution on the par of the Industrial Revolution. And I, I would challenge that, because actually the Industrial Revolution, I think, was a facet of something more profound, which you and I would probably characterize as the bourgeois revolution, which was a social revolution, which involved the creation of the middle class who were being squeezed out, the creation of the working class through the enclosures and so on. And I don't think you see that going on today. I think we are seeing an economic transformation. And if your metaphor of the operating system for the 21st century is appropriate, which metaphors like that rarely are, then maybe the internet is the steam engine of the 21st century, but it needs applications. What about the network class? You're the expert on network society. Is Absolutely. the network class the new bourgeoisie? 
Uh, interesting idea. Uh, yes, if they are the only ones that have access to this offline world. So social mobility, which is in crisis certainly in this country, will be addressed by more access to human networks and network behavior and network skills, and without it, they'll be stuck. And I sort of, I think you might be onto something about your elitism that... I'm not sure it's a social relation, but let's see. But, Nico, um, wrap but, up, please. So my point is that the, the applications for the operating system, like genetically modified organisms, if you look at the FT today, it rails against the European Commission for giving in to lobby groups worried about risk. Now, the Internet empowers those industries, but not when risk culture and regulation stop them. So I would challenge the quality of the revolution that we're actually seeing. Risk, culture, and regulation, James Rosenthal from Google. Oh, my Good God. Good moment for you to come uh, in here. What do you do for Google? I actually met you at a stream in Greece. I look after some of the global agency relationships. And I, it's a broader question, although I feel like a, a lamb to the slaughter here. Um, <laughs> you are a lamb to the slaughter uh, well, here, okay, but well, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, I earn my dinner or something. But um, it seems like you're ascribing a level of excellence or in your expectation to the internet after 15 odd years or whatever you want to say that is unfair what why should it be all things to all people at an excellent level when it's still very much in its infancy or adolescence in terms of say you, you know you, you sort of said well you know wikipedia's biased but yeah but the harvard library is online and it's free i mean there are, so what do you ex you expect it to be perfect at this point and I, i'm struggling like why why you think it should be, or how far away from that it so is. Are you a utopian, idealistic fantasist, Andrew? Well, I think two things. Firstly, um, it's not that young. I mean, it was, uh, and I have a, two chapters on the history. 2019 will be celebrating the 50th anniversary of computer, computer communication, and 50 years is quite a long time. Secondly, internet speeds up time. So, you know, one minute in internet time is a year in analog time and, a, uh, you know, a century almost in, in pre-industrial time. Um, and thirdly, uh, we need to... Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe it's still relatively early. But, you know, 1812 was early when, when Lord Byron made his famous speech in Parliament about the impact of industrialization. Unless we speak up now, it's going to be too late because this world is changing so quickly. Think about the way in which the digital revolution is sweeping away now, you know, dramatic changes in transportation. Google is involved in that, and healthcare and education. So the idea that I'm going to wait 50 years to wait for this thing to work out is absurd. I think we need to speak up now. I think it's not too early, and unless we speak now, it will be actually too late to shape it to the way in which we want this revolution Best to go. That's a true agitator. Two more points, and then we're just going to finish and wrap up and talk about the internet face-to-face. -face. Christina Patterson and Nigel Cameron, and then that's our lot. Christina. You're good at this. I thought I, I like was being good bossy. Go on. Um, I, as of and what do you do? I'm a journalist. Okay. Uh, used to One be, of the few left, right? Uh, no, used to be on a big, fat staff salary, uh, relatively fat, <laughs> and now a member of the precariat, like most journalists of my age um, and and how is it being a, a precariat what's it like phrase, it's extremely precariat. precarious it's very difficult you know I am heartbroken because the industry I adore is going down the plug hole and because you can't earn a proper living from it anymore and 
you know, I love it. I still do journalism. I subsidise it by doing other things, but it is certainly precarious. You're buying a, you're, 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 you're driving an Uber car. I'm driving an Uber car, and, exactly. And, and, and cleaning other people's homes the, in the... Not quite, but... That's <laughs> the future of labour. Not far so, off. So, Christina, what's your <laughs> But my, point? my point is that I agree with you that internet time is different to other time. And it seems to me that nobody has shown very much indication of coming up with any monetized model for any of this content. And in that time, whole generations have grown up thinking that so-called content is as free as the air we breathe. So I don't see a way of turning back that clock. And monetized models that have emerged in relation to, for example, the music industry have been at a much, much lower level of monetization. So it seems to me that all so-called creative content is now essentially a hobby possibly a little side For line. rich people. Toby and Young wrote a good people. piece exactly. about that. Exactly. To write a book okay. now, you've got to be rich. Thank yeah. you. That's a great point. And, uh, but, 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 but this is a terrible time, and I think it's really important to make the point. As you know, ex-journalist, part of the precariat now, it's a terrible time to be a creative. I mean, it's fine for most of us. We have our connections. We have our starts. But if you're 20 years old and you want to write a novel, you want to, make, you want to sell songs, you want to be a photographer... It's almost impossible now to start a living. So it's really important to bear that in mind. What if you want to be a YouTuber? You can buy a lottery ticket, but that's okay. the reality of YouTube. Okay. Candice, don't be disruptive. You're going off message. Final word to someone who flew in from D.C. today. Uh, last week. Nigel Cameron. Thank you very much. No, no pressure. Nigel Cameron, I direct a... Wrap think, up nicely for I, your... I direct a think tank in Washington on technology policy. Andrew, great to see you again, and I'm... I've not read this book yet, read the earlier books, and I'm basically in your court, as you know. Uh, a reflection, Kevin Kelly would say that technology will solve the problem. He always says that. I think he's half right, partly because I don't see how else we'll solve it. But secondly, my question to you is, how do we refurbish regulation, which is, in the Anglo-Saxon world, such a terribly negative concept, and, and the connotation is just ter dreadful, as essentially the, the will, the values of the people, which is really what it's meant to represent, because that, I think, is the crunch question. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question to end with. I mean, we need to reinvent politics. One of the cultural problems of the Internet age is our lack of respect for authority, the way in which we destroy things and reject people with authority without building new forms of authority. Politics needs to be reinvented. Politicians need to reinvent themselves. They're too slow very relevant, and you know, the Zuckerbergs and the pages of the world are, are essentially moving ahead so quickly that they can't keep up. So I think that is a fundamental challenge. I don't necessarily have the answer, but it is the key question. How we reinvent politics in the digital age. You know, the libertarians like Thiel believe that we don't need to reinvent politics, that it was that the, the politics that has been the problem, but I think politics is the solution come to names not numbers in Suffolk which is now sold out we'll hear Andrew so you can't but sell they any more will tickets. not to this one but to the Oxford one in September but the point is that I would love you to all be a fly on the wall when the UKIP MP Douglas Carswell himself a proponent of politics and the internet comes face to face with Andrew but for now thank you for not disappointing us with your um, critique and enjoy more hospitality from News UK and thank you for your time and thank you to Andrew Keane.